0: Amen. Thank you, Mike, for that. And thank you, choir, for singing. It is a joy to have a choir and to hear music again. Um, I know, Joe, you're particularly happy about having that choir there. And and we're taking new members. So if you'd like to join us in the choir, it is a really great opportunity to make fun of Joe and, uh, and be entertained. And so we would encourage you. That is an hour well spent. Um, Sharon, if anything, she has learned through choir that my daughter uh, has a mouth and I don't know how to close it. So, uh, so if you would like to get to enjoy that, I would encourage you to join us for choir on Sundays at four o'clock, correct? Amen. Um, all right, Matthew, are you going to start, are you going to join the choir? Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you were volunteering. I, I, just, I, I misunderstood you there. I want to start today by just posing a question. Uh, I do that often in Sunday school class, and I know that not always uh, we can have those back and forth here. But I want you to think about the question, this question. What does it mean to become mature in Christ? What does it mean to become mature in Christ? This is an important topic that the Bible talks about a lot. While the gospel is certainly the central message of all that the Bible has, there is a great deal of scripture that is pointing us as to how do we live as Christians and how do we grow as Christians? How do we become more mature in Christ? Ephesians talks about it, and I think it communicates it very well, when it says that, that, that we are called to build up the body of Christ— Until we attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He even, he basically tells us, this is why we exist. He says, listen, you have apostles and, and prophets and evangelists and preachers and teachers, and you have all these people. So to see the body of Christ, to do the work of ministry so that everybody can become mature in Christ. So we know this is important, and I would argue to at least the church present today, that that this is what we are called to do. But there's a problem. We don't always know what that means. How do we know we are becoming mature in Christ? What does it look like to become mature in Christ? What are the signs that you are maturing in Christ? Well... There is a measurement that I have often used, and it's one that I like to to kind of point to in my own life as well as the life of others to gauge maturity in Christ. And that is how much do I trust God through the ups and downs of life? And how do I see that in other people? I think often maturity in Christ means that no matter what life throws at you, whether it is good things and seasons of blessings and rejoicings or bad things and seasons of lament and sorrow, do you trust in God? Think about it for just a second. Have you ever known a person that was going through a really, really tough time? I am confident that everybody in this room has gone through seasons in their lives of sorrow. They have lost loved ones. They have seen their world just fall apart. They have seen things happen in their life that that, that were just, never would they have ever expected or anticipated. And yet, they have trusted God and seem to be doing pretty well. Can you think of anybody like that? This is not to say that they were just hiding their pain or putting on a good face, that they were faking it until they made it, but rather that in the midst of their pain, they had a sense of peace because they knew that God was with them. Can you think of a person in your life that has been an example of that? Maybe someone in this church. I know I have. I've seen it, and I stand in in awe of it, and I pray that I will be like them when those times come in my own life. As we continue in our study of Mark, we have come to a time just before, and I am talking, we are to the point where we are talking hours before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. And in our passage today, we have two stories, two seemingly almost separate uh, episodes in this final day before the betrayal that actually work to complement each other and tell us a story about what it means to be mature in Christ and maybe even provoke a decision in our own lives about our growth in Christ. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be picking up in verse 12 and reading through to verse 21. As we turn there, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 12, it says this, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, His disciples said to him, where do you want to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, and he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, to, and ready, prepared for you there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in this bowl. For the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Please be seated. So as we put this in, into context, we, we start with kind of the, the initial question that is asked. Obviously, we are in Jerusalem right now. We are coming right up onto Easter, you know, Easter Sunday for us. But we are right in the Passover time for Jesus and his disciples. It is why they're in Jerusalem. It's why all of this stuff has been going on throughout this entire week because they are there for the Passover. And finally, they are getting to this point where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And so that is their question. Where do we celebrate the Passover? What is the plan here? Now, a couple things that you might want to know about what's happening in this question. The Passover takes place in the first month of the Jewish calendar. And it starts somewhere around the 14th or the 15th day. And the reason I say that is kind of some things happen on the 14th day and some of the things really happen on the 15th day. And, and the way that it is written, we kind of get some some blurriness, so to speak, on whether which day they're actually talking about. This was the um, Feast of the Unleavened Bread that was attached to the Passover and the Passover lamb. They were baking bread without yeast. It is very similar to what we have when, when Miss Margie is not graciously baking us good leavened bread, um, which is those kind of cracker things. And they will eat that. And then on the Passover, the day of the Passover, they will eat a lamb and a lot of other things that go with it. There is a special meal that is prepared specifically for this, this event And the Jewish people were expected to eat that meal in Jerusalem. And so what was happening was, is even though he had been spending most of his time outside of the city in Bethany, in order to eat the Passover, he needed to walk into town and go into town and find a place to eat it there. And so that is what they're asking. Where do you want us to go in the city of Jerusalem in order for you to be able to eat the Passover meal? This whole celebration was instituted as a memorial for what God had done as he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. If we go to Exodus chapter 12, we hear the context of of this whole thing. And in Exodus 12, we are getting the information about the Passover meal. And this is connected to that very last plague. The plague where um, God is going to kill the firstborn of everything, literally every, every child, every cattle, every animal, um, every firstborn is going to die overnight. And in order for the Jewish people to escape that fate and that, that kind of angel of death that is going to go through there, they are called to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of the lamb and paint it over their door, And that will tell this spirit that is going to go through and and, and take the firstborn to pass over the houses where they find the blood. In light of all that, God says this. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, which is the, the, the top of the door and the two door posts, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, and you shall observe this rite, and when your children say to you, What does this rite mean? you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. In response to all this, it says, the people bowed low and they worshipped. In the midst of this last plague and in this horrible thing. Israel is passed over and because of this last plague, Israel is then almost immediately sent out of Egypt. This is the final event where Pharaoh finally says, go and go quickly. It's the reason why even if we talk about this meal, they were supposed to eat it with their shoes on and their stick still in their hand and they were to eat it quickly as though they were about to leave. Because they knew that, that this, this, this rite, that this memorial meal that they were doing was a reminder that they were once in slavery, but through this last defining huge act, they would be released and set free. This means that this meal is absolutely saturated with ideas of redemption and freedom. And it was the reminder that God is a redeeming God. This one little question leads us to what I can only call a crazy scenario. In response to this question, Jesus gives them this this unbelievable kind of chain of events that is going to happen to them. And he tells them, he tells the two, and I think we can look at other gospels and see that that is Peter and John. And he says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to go into the city. And when you get into the city, you will encounter a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow that man. And when that man eventually walks into a house, you go into that house. And when you go into that house, you will say to the people, where is the room that you have prepared for my master? And the owner of the house, the the master of that house will lead you to an upper room that will be completely ready and furnished for the Passover meal. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. Jerusalem is not a small town. It is a rather large city, especially in this day and age, and, and, and would be a pretty, pretty bustling. It would be a lot of people in a fairly small amount of space. It was especially busy because of the Passover. If you remember what I said, all Jewish men had to eat the Passover in Jerusalem which means Jewish men from all over the region and even beyond as far as Egypt and other places had traveled to Jerusalem for the purpose of eating this meal. Imagine kind of in our context today what it's like when Derby lands in Louisville. How many people in this room know for a fact not to ever go to Louisville during Derby time? Because it is a madhouse. That is, the, that is as close as an equivalent as I could probably give you today. That's probably, unfortunately, Derby's probably a little bit crazier, but you get the idea. So he says for them to go into town and to find a guy carrying a pitcher of water. Now, this is not the same as if... If Dennis knows a guy who has tickets to Missouri playing Kentucky in basketball and he says, hey, my friend's got tickets to the Missouri-Kentucky game, do you want them? And I'm like, yes, I want them. And he says, okay, when you get up to Lexington, you're going to look for a guy with blonde hair and he is going to be obviously wearing Kentucky stuff and and he is going to have a beard and glasses. And I may think of that and go like, how in the world am I going to find this guy in front of thing but he's going to tell me he's going to be standing outside of this statue and that's where you're going to find him and you're going to, and I'm going to know that's him. That's not what Jesus says. He says when you get into the city there'll be a guy holding a pitcher of water. What are the odds that in the tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem that day that as they wander the entire city that they're going to find one guy carrying a pitcher of water that is the right guy that they're supposed to follow. It's not good, I don't think. Now, I will tell you, as you study on this and as you look through the uh, commentaries, there's a couple of things they point out. One, it's not very common for a guy to be the one fetching the water. That was typically the job of a female. That's why you see the Samaritan woman that is fetching the water. That's why in the Old Testament, um, I believe it is... Uh, Rachel is the one taking going out to get the water when they when they are looking for a wife for Isaac. It is often a woman's job. So that does mean that it would have been less likely for a man to be doing that. On top of that, some commentators have speculated that the man may have been walking around carrying the pitcher as a signal to Jesus's followers that he had prearranged the meal. In other words, Jesus had already worked out all the details with one of his followers, and this is how they were going to find him. This is possible. And I want to throw that out there in kind of the sake of full disclosure. But if you think for just a moment of how unlikely it would be, given how crazy the city would be, and how, how wild the whole week had been, it is hard for me to believe that that is exactly what happened. There are just so many things that could go wrong with these instructions. And yet, these two followers of Jesus, these two disciples, take Jesus' instructions, go to the city. They trust Jesus and what he has told them. And it is exactly as Jesus told them it would be. I think it is reasonable for us to approach this as a divine appointment. That Jesus, being God in the flesh and in his his omniscience, knew that it was all prepared and how to get his people in the right place at the right time. I don't think it's unreasonable for us to look at this passage and see the power of God at work. And as crazy as this little scenario was, Mark says that they found it just as he had told them. They trusted his word, and his word came to pass. And I am reminded of of the words that we see all over Psalms, such as Psalm 119, where it says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. See, this first passage shows us that in the midst of some crazy scenario where it's like, how on earth could he have possibly known that everything would be that way? And how could he have known that his disciples would find the right person? And how could he have known in the midst of all of that crazy that everything was going to happen exactly like he said? How could he have known that? And yet yet his disciples said, okay, I'm in, let's go. And they go in and they see the guy with the picture and they say, I I, almost wonder if you got like John and and Peter and they go in and they go, does that look like a picture to you? Yeah. Should we follow him? That's what he said. Okay. And so they follow him and I don't talk about courage. You talk about like, you know how we get so scared to like knock on, and this is fine, knock on someone's door to like tell them about Jesus when we do door to door evangelism type stuff and do visitation, that's a scary, scary thing. Imagine just walking through the door Like you just see the guy with the picture and he walks in the door and you go Go ahead You first I insist no no he loves you most yeah, but you're kind of the leader. Just do it You're faster am not you said you were and Then finally they just walk in the door and say hey Where's the room you've prepared for my master? And he says, oh, it's up here. Let me show you. What a tremendous amount of faith. What a tremendous amount of trust. And even if there was a a thousand small points of doubt along the way, they trusted him. And because they trusted Jesus, they were obedient. And because they were obedient, they found it exactly how Jesus said it. And this crazy scenario that proves to be true gives way to a crazy revelation from Jesus' own mouth. So these two find the room, find it exactly how it is. They get all the stuff prepared. They get everything ready to go. They go back. They collect Jesus and the rest of the disciples. And it says that Jesus and the twelve then came to this house to prepare the Passover, to eat the Passover, And so after the Passover is all prepared and the guests and and the people have all arrived, they begin to celebrate the meal. And this is supposed to be a feast. And this is very much so turned into a time of celebrating, celebrating their relationship with God, celebrating being the covenant people, celebrating the grace and the mercy of God. This is very much so similar to kind of our Easter meal. And when we all sit around the the table for our Easter meal, and whether you're having ham or lamb, and and I know because we're in the South, we're all having deviled eggs. And many of you are trying to shove them in whole as fast as you can, especially in my house. We are happy, and we are celebrating, and we are joyful, and we are, are if they're my kids, itching to get into their candy and their baskets, and they're excited about all that. That same feeling is here as well. And they're enjoying this meal, this meal together as friends. But in the midst of this meal, in this time of joy and celebration, Jesus drops a bomb on them that would have completely altered the atmosphere of the room. Look again at verse 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And with that one statement, the air is absolutely sucked out of the room. And the time of joy and laughter and fellowship becomes a time of distrust and worry and woe. Suddenly, this great Easter meal in our case became a game of among us. For you young people who like that game. And for you older people, don't worry about it. It just doesn't matter. This was the ultimate party killer. Jesus had told them that one of their very closest, one of uh, of their own, one of the twelve, the statement is said multiple times, one of the twelve was going to hand him over to his enemies. That's what the word betrayed means. Was going to hand him over to their enemies that he would be betrayed. And this is where the story gets interesting. This is where we begin to contrast these two stories that we have back to back. If we think about how they arrived in this place, that Jesus gave them these wild and insufficient instructions that, that there's so many ways it could go wrong. And yet they trusted them and it came to pass. And yet in this time and in this moment, when he tells them this fantastic and, and, and almost to them crazy statement and accusation, their response is not, oh, the response is no, surely not I. In fact, one by one, each of the twelve looked Jesus square in the eyes and said, Surely not I. And I want you to think for just a moment that one of the twelve who said, Surely not I, was the one already making plans to do so. They just could not believe that any one of them would do such a thing. Nor could they believe that betrayal and death would be the end of Jesus' ministry. And yet again, we see that that is exactly what is going to come to pass. If we look forward even to just verse 31, we see how Peter, the one who happily went in and looking for a random guy carrying a pitcher of water, is also the same one who says, verse 31 reads, But Peter said insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. They could believe that Jesus would lead them to a guy with a pitcher, who would lead them to a house, who would lead them to a room that would be totally prepared for their meal. But they could not believe when he told them that one of them would betray him. Even though Jesus had been telling them this for days, even weeks. If we go back a few chapters to Mark chapter 8, it says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after that three days, he would rise again. Jesus has told them all of this before, and they just refused to believe it. They believed that he could have a room already ready for them in town in the midst of the the busiest time of the year in one of the busiest cities uh, of their area, and yet they could not believe when he said this. We have to ask the question, did the disciples trust Jesus or did they not? We see that they could trust him when it was about where to eat, But they couldn't trust him when it came to what was going to happen in the next few days. I cannot help but ask the question if we're any different. If you think about it for just a second, and if we really, and I want everybody here to look at themselves, not look at the person next to them. How often do we trust Jesus with our salvation? Trust Jesus with sickness or or surgery or, or something else? Trust Jesus with our job interviews. We have no problem trusting Jesus when we know we have no control over the situation. But do we trust him with our finances? Or do we still pull back from generosity and and, and giving when we don't know how God's going to make ends meet? Do we really trust God with our daily schedules? Or do we very quickly throw out Bible study, fellowship, even morning worship because I'm just too busy? Do we trust God with our relationships with other people? Or do we find ourselves constantly putting ourselves in bad relationships, either with people of the opposite sex or friends or work people because we really just don't trust God enough with our relationships? friendships, with belonging, with our place in society. We believe that Jesus can save us from all our sins, but we don't believe that he can save us from a broken friendship. We believe that Jesus can walk on water, but we don't believe that he can walk us to our future spouse. We believe that Jesus can heal the sick and raise the dead, but we don't believe that Jesus can heal our hearts when we have suffered loss. Brothers and sisters, if we can trust Jesus with our soul and that the words that we find in Scripture are true, that He can perform miracles beyond anything we could even imagine, then we can trust that He is working through the everyday things in our lives and we can walk with Him in obedience. All of this... And our passages today come down to a very simple question. Will you trust God? And specifically in our passage, will you trust Jesus? See, at this point, the disciples didn't get it. And and I'll be honest, we get the benefit of uh, looking at this from the third person outside looking in 2,000 years removed And even though at one point they believed they could trust him with dinner, but they weren't sure they could trust him with the end of his ministry. What about you? Do you believe you can trust Jesus with your salvation and you can trust Jesus with the big things that maybe you can't control, but you don't really trust Jesus when it comes to the everyday things? You don't really trust Jesus when it comes to finding a future uh, spouse or or trust Jesus to to find the right job or the right school or the right friends. And so you do that on your own. And you throw out your trust in God because when it comes to those areas of your life, you really don't believe that God has your best interests at heart. And so you're going to look out for yourself. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord when things are going great? And do you trust the Lord when things are going not so great? In the midst of that, will you cry out when you can feel doubt begin to rise up in you? Because that's really the question. If you're walking with the Lord... I'm going to tell you right now, there are going to be times that you doubt. There are going to be times where you doubt your salvation. There are going to be times where you doubt um, whether you're going the right way. There are going to be times you could be doing everything right and doing everything God's called you to do. And yet there are going to be times where you go, what am I doing? But even then, are you going to say, God, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I trust you and I'm going to keep walking with you. Where in those moments you're going to say, God, I have no idea what I'm doing, which means I have no idea what you're doing, so I'm going to do it my way. I'm reminded the words of a father that we have read about earlier in our study of the gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 9, we find a father who has a son who is demon-possessed. And despite the best efforts of the Pharisees and even the disciples, that boy was still demon-possessed. When he came to Jesus, he said, if you can do anything, please do it. And Jesus said, if I can do anything... Do you believe? And this man said these words, and I think these should be the words that we have every day. He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And I think so often in life, and we see it in the disciples right here, that in one sense we believe, but in another we don't. And I think all of us are called to cry out as this man did and to say, God, I believe in you. But God, there are still some areas of my life where I don't. And Lord, I need your help. I need you to help me in my unbelief. I need you to show me how to trust you in the areas of my life where I don't trust you. God, I need your forgiveness and I need your steadfast love. Because I am still learning and I am still growing. And I want to trust you completely. Will we cry out to Jesus with these words today? For some of us, I know that means maybe placing our hope and trust in Jesus for the very first time. And if that is your desire today, we communicate this often in our church using three circles. And and those three circles start with this idea that, that God has a design. And really, that speaks well into what we're talking about today. Thank you, Zach. And we have to have the faith that God has a design. And that design is not just the big details or the huge landmarkers of life, but that God has a design for your life and all of it. But because of sin and because we don't trust God's design, and, and we, try to, we say to ourselves, like, I don't know what your design is, so I'm going to create it myself, and we depart from God's design, and that's called sin. And sin always leads us to brokenness. Anything in your house, when you use it the way it was not intended to be used, you will find eventually that it is broken. And that brokenness is where every single one of us find us today. And we know we're broken. We can feel it. And we try to fix brokenness by a thousand different things. We try to fix brokenness through religion, charity, our children, sports. But you can't fix brokenness from brokenness. And that's why Jesus came. Because God was not okay with leaving all of humanity broken. And so God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the one in whom we are speaking about today, the one who is about to be betrayed and crucified. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus came for those very purposes so that he could die on the cross for our sins and that he would rise from the grave three days later. And that if you will place your hope and trust in Jesus, and, and we understand that that may start by doing it imperfectly, but you believe in Jesus, that you trust in him, and you make him the Lord of your life, and that you believe in Jesus, and in turning to, turning to him, you turn from sin. That you will be saved, and you will be able to cry out to the Lord and say, I do believe, and Lord, help me in my unbelief. If that is your heart's desire today, then then we would invite you to do that today. But if you are with us today and you've already made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, but you recognize that in some areas of your life, you trust Jesus and you believe in him and you've handed things over to him, but you recognize that in other areas of your life, you don't. Then we want to invite you to come up to these steps. And we want you to, and we invite you to pray the prayer of this man in, in, that we read about earlier in Mark, that we say, "Lord, I do believe and help my unbelief." We encourage you to hand everything over to God and trust him completely. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for for just the example of the disciples, and, and we praise you for that mostly because we see our sins and our faults in them. And God, even though we know we are not perfect people, that you can do perfect things through imperfect people. God, I pray that the example that they have here is an example that we will take to heart. And Lord, that we will not just trust you with some things, but we will trust you with everything that we will bring all that we are to you and trust you with all that we are. God, I pray that, that, that we will see you at work and that that trust will lead to a testimony and that that trust will lead to more and more areas in our lives, that we will trust you more and more and that our walk with you become deeper and deeper so that we will be like those who we see, those tried and true veterans of the faith who have trusted you through the good days and the bad days. And even when their world is rattled, their faith in you is strong. And God, may those people serve as a testimony to us today as we cry out to you and say, Lord, I do believe. But help me in my unbelief. Lord, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.